And the ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witnesses. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the word. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Chris. Uh, good morning, everyone, once again. Um, I know my video is a little bit off. We actually lost our power um, late last night and it still hasn't returned to us. But I do hope that you can hear me well and see me well enough that you can hear my, uh, you can watch my mouth move and you can see my expressions as well. Today in our passage, we see Jesus continuing to answer questions about what does it look like to enter into the kingdom of heaven? In other words, who is saved? How can one be saved? Is it important to be saved? And I think that last question before we get into this passage is very relevant to many of us. The question of, do we want to be saved? Do we see our need of God? Do we see salvation and all of eternity as something to be longed for? Do we see that what prevents us from getting to God is our sins and our desires to fix ourselves and to fix other people, to fix the world according to our own desires? For many people in this world, they do not see a need for God. And they will verbalize it themselves and say, I do not need the Lord. I have a nice home. I have a nice family. I have all that I ever wanted and needed. And yes, perhaps they'll go through their midlife crisis or they'll go through some other emotional trauma in their lives. But their response is simply, we can deal with this. I can deal with this. Life is not as bad as it should be, as, as, as it could be. Now, there are those of us who are believers in the Lord, and there are those in the world who profess the name of Jesus himself, but they live in such a way that 
it behooves the world as they look upon them of whether they really need Jesus or not. Whether or not the kingdom of heaven is a priority to them or not. By the way they live, by what they talk about, by how they respond to the worries in the world around us. Brothers and sisters, you and I, in order to want Jesus and to need Jesus, have to look at our hearts once again and see that our sins and to see that our lifestyles and see that our hearts are really far from the Lord. And there needs to be a spiritual awakening in us that tells us and speaks to us once again that the only thing that will satisfy the longing that we have is God himself. And there needs to be a reckoning that that which prevents us from obtaining that fellowship with the Lord is nothing less and nothing more than our sins themselves, our desires to be our own masters of this world. And so this is the world that Jesus is talking to. Not only is he trying to, to preach the good news to people, but he's trying to convince them of their need for the good news. It's a difficult proposition for any of us. Perhaps some of you have, have gone and bought a car in the last six months or a year or, or a new house perhaps or whatever it may be. And the salesperson always tries to upsell you and say, you actually need this car. You actually need this house. You actually need these things to, to upgrade your life. And it's something you've never seen before. Jesus tells us that he, that we need him. And he's not trying to sell us or upsell us anything, but he's trying to open our eyes to see our need for him and our need for all of eternity. And so our number one prayer, always brothers and sisters, is that we see our need for God, that there is a brokenness and a longing to know him. And this is how Jesus sort of approaches the people around him. If we go a little bit back further in, in, in chapter 18 and look at verses 9 through 14, we see a Pharisee and a tax collector. And they're, and they're praying openly to the Lord and they're praying in front of people to, to gain the praise. And for them, their belief is in order for me to get into heaven, I must be a good religious person. I must pray in such a way that the people around us, around me, recognize that I have spirituality in my life. So they put on the guise of being a Christian or, or, or a spiritual person. 
And Jesus points them out and says, listen, religion is not the way to salvation. Following the rules of any religion, whether it be Christianity or whatnot, is not the way to salvation. Then he points to the tax collector who, as he prays, is not able to even walk close to the temple, but instead has his eyes to the ground. And he says, it says it's, he's beating his breast. And in other words, he, he knows and he understands that there's no way that God can, can hear him, but he's crying out anyway. But he feels like he acknowledges that there's no way God's going to hear my voice, but I'm going to pray to him anyways, just hoping that he'll hear my voice. There's no presumption that God should listen to him. There's no presumption that this man deserves to be heard by God himself. And Jesus points to this man and says, here is a man who understands what it means to come, what it means to know his need. His need to know God his need, to, to, un, his need to, to be in fellowship with him, but his understanding of the huge chasm between him and God himself. The, the Pharisee believes that, that he deserves a hearing with the Lord, and he prays to, him, to the Lord as if the Lord owes him something. But this tax collector who understands his low place in this life and also the lowly place he has in his heart because of his sinfulness. Praise to the Lord in desperation, hoping that God will listen to him. This is when you know that you need God. This is when you know that God is what you want. It's when you start to realize that the only way for him to hear you is by his mercy upon you. And there's a desperation on our part to cry to the Lord to hear us that he may understand us. This is amazing. God does not listen to the prayers of people who are praying just perfunctory prayers. But God listens to those whose prayers are sometimes without words, sometimes unscripted, Sometimes just a desperate plea. Lord, I do not deserve anything. But please, can you hear me? And help me. Help me to know you. Help me to love you. Help me to receive you. I need you desperately. Further on in the chapter, he talks about the little children. And how people were bringing infants or small children to him. And people were saying, the disciples were saying, you know, these children are, are, are a distraction. 
And Jesus says, no, let them come to me. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now this, this again plays, plays to the whole theme of humility, of knowing the need that we have for God. This childlikeness that we see here, it's not so much an innocence, but it's more of an understanding that children need, that the children have of, of needing things. They need their parents. They need someone to provide for them. They, they need someone to help them. They can't do things on their own. They understand that. And they're at the mercy of those who are in authority over their lives. Your children understand that. And God says, unless you receive God as a child, as one who is under the authority of God in all humility, that you receive whatever God gives you with joy and thankfulness, whatever it may be, that you don't come to God negotiating as an adult, but do you come to God in humility, that that God will surely open up the gates of heaven for you. So number one, religion, following the rules of Christianity does not get you into heaven. Number two, the posture that all of us need to have and continue to have is one under authority, one who deserves nothing, like a child, like someone who, who does not deserve the attention of the God in heaven, but who nevertheless continues to cry out to him, hoping that God can forgive us of our sins and hoping that God will extend his mercy to us. And so we get to sort of this, the final um, story that God gives about the posture of humility and about those who God extends salvation to in the parable of the rich ruler. The rich ruler says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus starts by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he goes on to list the, the Ten Commandments, or at least some of them. He says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. Now you could hear the earnestness of this rich ruler. From, from all accounts, it sounds as if he is a good moral person who longs to follow the laws of the Lord. And Jesus here lists some of them out. And the ruler is able to say in his heart and his mind that I have not committed adultery, I have not murdered, I've not stolen, 
I've not bear false witness, and I've honored my father and my mother. And Jesus, being the Son of God, could see into the heart of this person. So you see, his goal was not to be not to not to have a theological discussion with him. His goal was to help him to see his sin, that he may repent and turn. But here is this man, just like the Pharisee, understanding religion in terms of simply keeping religious laws. Or in this this hand, we have an intertwining of being a religious person and, and being a good moral person as well. This rich ruler believes, listen, I've not committed adultery. I've had one wife. I've not killed anyone. I've never stolen, never lied, or bear false witness in the, in the court, at the very least. And I've honored my father and my mother. And this man truly believed this. He truly believed that he was a good man. And here's where we have to stop and think about our own lives. Are we like the rich ruler? Are we like the Pharisee? Who comes to a point that we believe that we need to keep our moral life outstanding for God to grant me eternal life? Is a good moral life all that we need to be recognized as believers. Unfortunately, in our world today, there are people who claim to be Christians who believe such a thing. That there is no such thing really as a sin that can't be forgiven. That Jesus has called us to this life just simply to do our best. Just do your best and God will show you favor. That that's all he asks of you to do. So look at the Ten Commandments and try your best to follow them. And that is all that God requires of you to have salvation. And the better you are in living this moral life, the more favor that God will bestow upon you. This is a flat-out lie. This is a flat-out lie that the world tells us, and this is a flat-out lie that we sometimes convince ourselves. That simply doing our moral duty grants us salvation, or simply doing our moral duty grants us fellowship with God himself. I believe that deep in your hearts, we already come to a full understanding of that. We know that when we go to work, we have duties and we simply do them but your manager knows whether you like your job or not. You are a child, perhaps, to your parents, and 
you obey your parents, but your parents know whether or not that is out of love or not. So Jesus moves on. And Jesus decides, I need to minister to this person. I need to expose to them their need for me in order to show them how difficult and how grace-filled salvation is. So he said to him, um, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that, he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be said? Who, then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with men is possible with God. God. These words to this man were words to hit him in his heart, to understand, for him to understand that good morality or living itself demands that we do it perfectly. Who is good but God alone? Who is perfect but God alone? If you want to play this game and please God by being morally, morally upright, then you have to be 100% morally perfect. Now, most of us have selective memory. We will simply pick and choose those times that we are morally perfect. But those other times that we are not, we will selectively forget about those. But Jesus does not let us. He knows that for this man, it is his wealth that is preventing him. And Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's two things that work at here. Yes, it is more difficult for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. All I need to, all we need to see is simply what is happening in our world today. To see what is happening here in the United States of America, where Christianity at times is being um, co-opted by those who want to use it to further their economic and their political causes. It is difficult for them to understand what it is to enter into the kingdom of God. But it's interesting what those who heard it said. They said, then who can be saved? And they're asking this, I believe, not simply, it, well, you can read this two ways. The first way you can read it, say, then who can be saved? Because we all think we're rich. We all think we're wealthy. We all think we have something. But I think there's a deeper way to understand this question, which is that who can be saved is simply None of us can follow any of the commandments. And if that is true, then who can be saved? Those who are rich covet to have more. Who can be saved? Those who understand that they have not honored their father and their mother, then who can be saved? 
those who have understand the deeper meanings of stealing, of murdering, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Do you know what a conversion experience looks like, brothers and sisters? Now, there's many paths to to come to know the Lord. Some of you might have come to know the Lord by understanding God's love for you when you were lonely, when people were doing nothing but looking down upon you, when you felt no love and you you felt the love of the Lord. That's beautiful. Cling to that. But when you come to know the Lord in, his, in the fullness, there has to be this part of the complex of your, of your um, conversion to him that's essential for you to claim Jesus as your own. And Paul talks about this in his own conversion experience, very much like what Jesus did here. Paul himself went through the Ten Commandments, and he went commandment by commandment. And he really believed that he kept all those commandments. If we look at Exodus 20, we we can see that the Ten Commandments there of, you know, you should only have one God. I've only had one God. You should not, um, you you should not make an idol. I've not made an idol. You should not take his name in vain. I haven't done that either. Keep the Sabbath day holy. I've done that. Um, Honor my father and mother. Yeah, I have done that as well. Murder, I haven't killed anyone. Commit adultery, no. Uh, Not steal, I haven't stolen anything. Bear false witness against your neighbor. That's right, in this context, it's the court of law. I have not bear false, false witness. And then he comes to the final one. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. I don't believe that God made the Ten Commandments in this order by accident. I think the first nine commandments, you can fool yourself into thinking that you've kept them because most of them can be discernible by outside actions. But Paul, when he came to this Tenth Commandment, Thou shalt not covet. In other words, you shall not want something someone else has. That commandment goes to your heart and your desires. And there's no way you can externalize that and make that into a religious or simply a moral standard outside of yourself that you can keep. And Paul says, when he read that, He understood sin for the first time. And when he understood his sin, he understood that he deserved nothing but punishment and death from the Lord. And he understood what Jesus is teaching here. If it is true, If it is true that we can't keep any of these commandments, who can be saved? 
what's the purpose of religion if we can't keep all the laws of religion to be saved? What about simply a good moral life if I can't live that good moral life? Who then can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. And this is why I mean, brothers and sisters, this conversion experience with the Lord, that in the complex of coming to the Lord, that there needs to be this central union of your heart where you understand that you're a sinner before the Lord, that you understand there's nothing that you can do for your salvation. But the only thing that you can lean upon is like what we've read before in this tax collector, Lord, I'm a miserable sinner before you. I do not even know if you will hear me because my sins are so great. But forgive me and allow me to have fellowship with you anew again. And this is when Paul starts to understand that we're saved by grace and grace alone. That the purpose of the Ten Commandments or the law was to show us our need and to bring us to our needs. It's to cry out to the Lord, and then when the Lord bestows upon him his grace and mercy through the Holy Spirit, we become saved by him. And so I urge you, read those Ten Commandments on your own. I urge you, read Matthew 5 and 6 to, to hear the fuller description of what those Ten Commandments mean. And as sin enters into your heart, know that God's forgiveness is waiting for you to forgive you and to draw you near Him as well. This passage ends with a praise that Jesus gives to Peter and his followers. He said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come, eternal life. When we come to understand the fullness of the gospel, that we're saved by grace alone, when we come to understand that there is nothing that we can do to earn our salvation, but also there's nothing that we can do to lose our salvation. When we come to see the beauty of Jesus and what he's doing, the only acceptable response for someone who comes to know God is for them to deny themselves and to deny all things in this world and to pledge allegiance to him. We leave the authority in the sense of our parents and their pictures of us. We love them and they love us. But who we are now does not come from our parents' understanding of who we are, but it's God's understanding of who we are. 
we look at the riches that God has given us. And yes, you live in the United States of America. You are rich, all of you. But we look at what we have and we understand that this does not bring meaning into our lives. But we are here to use what God has given us to share forth the good news to others. And so Jesus says to these disciples, as I believe he says to us, you will receive many times more in this lifetime and also in the age to come eternal life. You will receive even more of the grace that God has given you as you live for him. Brothers and sisters, the mission of our church is, is very simple. We are here to glorify our God by obeying him in the, good, in the great commission to make disciples of all nations. We want people to worship Jesus, nothing more, nothing, nothing less, really. If we fail in other things as human beings, that's okay. If you're not able to, if you're a younger person, if you're not able to do calculus, that's okay. If you're not able to make however much, whatever number you have, that's okay. But we know that knowing the Lord and worshiping him and longing for other people to know him is our goal. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Let tears flow from your eyes because his law is not obeyed. And may you cling to the Savior who loves you and has forgiven you. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your mercy again. Lord, we are a people who long to know you and the people who long to make you known in this world. We are people, Lord, who want to help others to love you. And we want to be a people who help others, Lord, to obey all that you have commanded as well, to live as your disciples. Nothing less. And so, Lord, recalibrate our hearts and our minds. Lord, let us look at those Ten Commandments, Lord, that, that we may sort of cleanse our hearts and our minds of, of the things of this world and once again focus upon you and your desire for your kingdom to come. So sanctify us, Lord God. Sanctify us through your grace and, in, and through your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.